Welcome to another Griffith University podcast. Today we have with us Professor Jason Chum from the Centre for Governance and Public Policy. Today Jason is going to talk to us about China tax havenism, the link between China and the Caribbean. He's going to tell us why the uh, British Virgin Islands has become the biggest source of foreign direct investment into China and also why the Caymans is the biggest recipient of foreign direct investment from China outside of Hong Kong. So, very intriguing story, I think, that we're about to hear. So, over to you, Jason. Great. Thanks very much, Michael, and thanks very much, everyone, for coming along today. I feel some sort of trepidation giving this talk because my experience... My expertise for China extends only about as far as the average sort of Chinese restaurant menu. Um, I've never been to China. I don't speak Chinese. But I'm presenting this sort of research in Hong Kong in November, so I'm very grateful for uh, any feedback on people who um, obviously have a a great depth of Chinese literacy that I lack. Um, I guess there's an old joke about economists that economists see something working in practice and wonder how it could work in theory. Um, And this is sort of how I've come to this research topic now as well. I guess in the initial, the the figures in the abstract that that Michael's just mentioned, there seems to be something really strange going on with um, foreign investment into China, but also Chinese um, investment abroad. In that you've got these really tiny places that seem to have a completely disproportional or disproportionate influence. Um, So, again, you've got this tiny place, the British Virgin Islands, a self-governing British colony in the Caribbean, population 22,000, um, and yet behind Hong Kong, it's the second biggest foreign investor in China. Uh, it extends more foreign investment than um, the US, the European Union, and Japan combined. And looking at the flow the other way, you've got um, the Cayman Islands, uh, again in the Caribbean, again a sort of um, a British governed or a self-governing British territory. Um, and this, why does the Cayman Islands receive ten times more investment from China than does the United States? So th- this just seemed weird to me, looking at these statistics and, and finding out that they weren't just a quirk or a typo, that they're in fact been long-lasting. My curiosity was sort of deepened in looking at the explanations of this. It hasn't received too much attention, but the attention it has received or the explanations are out there, I don't think work. And I'm going to go through in the body of the presentation and look at two explanations for this, which I think fail. So in some sense, the plot thickened. Not only have you got these really strange statistics, but you've got a conventional wisdom that doesn't fit with the evidence, I'll argue. Um, the, The second reason, I guess, is I've been interested in small places that attract big money for a while, um, and particularly this question of tax havens and offshore financial centres, um, which I use sort of interchangeably. And the third is some, some policy importance and arguably maybe some relevance for other developing countries too, that the experience of China since 1978 has seen the greatest reduction of poverty in human history. Uh, and in some ways it's the um, single greatest achievement in terms of economic development. So even if we can only explain a small part of this progress by talking about the Caribbean and tax havens, it seems important not only for China, that you know, if you lift whatever it is, 300 or 400 million people out of poverty, um, even a small share of this can be attributed to tax havens, and this is important. But also there might well be consequences for other, other developing countries as well to talk about the, um, the Beijing model. In terms of the, the structure of the presentation, it's pretty, pretty short and, and simple. I'll start off just briefly by saying, again, there is something to this. That these statistics are not just a one-off or a fluke, and have a little look at them. Um, the, the tax havens that I'll talk about most are the Cayman Islands and the British Virgin Islands, sometimes abbreviated as the BDI, 
but it's not just those two. Then I'll go on with sort of the negative part of the presentation, if you like. Okay, there are people who have queued to this relationship, who have explained it, and I'm going to go on and critique the conventional wisdom. The conventional wisdom tends to come in, in two flavours. One, that all this money is criminal money, um, particularly the proceeds of corruption. So, in fact, this link is, is a really negative idea, or at least it has, has deleterious effects for the Chinese economy. The second explanation, instead of being criminal money, is saying that this is so-called round-tripping, i.e. money that's taken from China to the Caribbean, back to China, as a means to minimise tax in a way that's um, against the spirit of the law, but is not, not technically illegal. As I go on to, to talk about, I think, as I say, both of those, um, both of those are, are, are wrong and an increasingly poor fit with the evidence. Um, so if the first part of the presentation is negative, if these explanations of criminal money and round-tripping don't work, of course, this begs the question of, of what does, what's going on. And, you know, I think sort of fair disclosure, I should say that I'm, I'm more confident that other people are wrong than I am that um, I'm right. But uh, so the, the, probably the negative part of the argument's probably on surer grounds than, than the positive parts, but nonetheless. The positive explanation is based on this idea of transaction costs, and particularly the idea that both Chinese and foreign investors find it easier to invest in China um, by using efficiency-enhancing institutions that are present in tax havens but absent in China. Um, and so that there's therefore something really to this tax haven connection, namely that institutions which, um, as I say, reduce transaction costs, which are either unavailable or only, only um, weakly present in China itself. So for that part, I go on and, and first introduce this notion of transaction costs, um, secondly say how transaction costs relate to China, um, and thirdly give four sort of brief examples, sort of applied examples, of either where um, Chinese investors have used tax haven, um, tax haven institutions to do things more efficiently and generate more growth. The first two examples and the second two examples where foreign investors have used tax haven institutions um, to again enhance efficiency and, and promote growth. And finally, to conclude, depending on how we're going for time, I'll have a little look at a comparison um, between India and Mauritius, where you have a similar sort of situation. Mauritius is the single biggest foreign investor um, in India. Again, Mauritius invests more in India than the United States, the European Union, and Japan combined. Um, Mauritius is also the second biggest recipient of investment from India after Singapore. So I'll talk a bit about the extent to which there are similarities and differences between the China-Caribbean connection um, and the Indo-Mauritian relationship as well um, and talk about um, the, to what extent these, these findings generalise or not um, to other countries. Now, uh, using my least favourite presentation tool, um, I just wanted to give a, a few statistics um, I'll go through just to say, I mean, the gist of it is you've got some really small countries that come high up in the ranking. So for those of you who can't read it, this is the top 10 FDI sources to China in 2008. You've got, again, the British Virgin Islands at number two, Singapore at number three, Japan, then the Cayman Islands, South Korea, the United States, just behind the United States, Samoa, um, and then Taiwan, and then Mauritius. Okay. In some ways, this probably understates the weirdness of what's going on, because that first column, which is Hong Kong, half of that first column, Hong Kong, is, um, is other tax havens as well, is British Virgin Islands in particular. Okay, so there's sort of often this triangular relationship going on. Um, sometimes it's sort of a, a Chinese-Caribbean connection. Sometimes it goes China, Hong Kong, British Virgin Islands, or China, Hong Kong, Cayman Islands as well. 
So again, it's, it's a Caribbean story, but not just. You know, why is the, why are the capital flows between China and Barbados much bigger than the capital flows between China and Britain? Um, why does Samoa have such a, a, such a pronounced capital relationship with China more so than Australia? So this is um, to China. This is leading FDI um, from China. And again, this sort of weird thing continues as well. Um, first off, uh, Hong Kong is sort of far and away the biggest, but again, a lot of the Hong Kong stuff is again going out through the British Virgin Islands. And then after that, you can see the Caymans, British Virgin Islands, Australia, Russia, Singapore, Germany, the United States, Sudan, uh, Macau, and the Bahamas. Okay? So whether you're talking about the money going into China or the money coming out, um, you've got these really small places that seem to have a really big presence there, which is sort of mystifying. Okay, well, as I say, this is surprising. It hasn't got as much attention as it should, but it has got some attention. Um, and as I say, there are sort of two explanations that people, those who have looked at this relationship, tend to adduce when they say, what's going on here? Why do you have widow, you know, semi-sovereign places that almost no one's ever heard of, um, uh, you know, with tiny populations, no natural resources to speak of, tiny labour force, um, you know, and yes, um, they're supposedly exporting billions and billions of dollars of capital to China, or receiving it from China. The first explanation, as I say, which I don't agree with, is, is people who read a lot of John Grisham, I think, and say, aha, um, the, the Cayman Islands, uh, it's criminal money. You know, they say, you know, superficially, reasonably, uh, look, there's a, lot of, there's a lot of economic crime in China, um, there's a lot of corruption, a lot of embezzlement, um, self-dealing, misappropriation of funds, bribery, um, insider trading, fraud, whatever it might be. Any crimes that generate profit... Um, and if you're a criminal looking to hold on to your ill-gotten wealth, it makes sense to put a border or two between you and the people who at least potentially are looking for you. So there's this idea of, well, again, if, if tax havens are famed for secrecy and famed for being havens for um, ill-gotten gains of criminals, of, of corrupt um, state officials or whoever, um, maybe we can explain these billions and billions of dollars in terms of criminal proceeds. Okay. This doesn't really work, okay, for at least for two reasons. Um, one, there's an assumption that tax havens are a more favourable resting place for proceeds of corruption or other criminal assets than are your common or garden places like the United States or Britain or France. Um, the tax havens provide tighter secrecy and, uh, as I say, a more secure resting place for stolen wealth. This might have been true 15 years ago, but... Over the last 10 years, things have changed around. And in fact, now tax havens are much less, or at least noticeably less secret than big economies like Britain, the United States, and France. One of the projects I'm collaborating on now is with the World Bank and the United Nations Office of Drugs and Crime on this thing called the Stolen Assets Recovery Initiative. Namely, if you're particularly a developing country and your leader or senior public official has stolen lots of money and put it overseas, how do you get it back? And part of this is, is developing a database of which countries' financial systems are used most often to host stolen wealth. And the, the overwhelming sort of leader in the field, if you could put it that way, is the United States. Um, again, if you're a corrupt official, um, then you tend to put your money disproportionately in the United States. A sort of particularly outrageous example, the leader of Equatorial Guinea, a tiny place in West Africa, um, per capita, it manages to be both per capita one of the richest countries in existence, but also has 80% of its population uh, living on less than $2 a day, um, simply because its leader manages to steal so much money, um, Teodoro Obiang. 
Uh, Obiang is Britney Spears' next-door neighbour in Malibu, California, uh, and has a $35 million mansion there, as well as a $33 million Gulfstream jet. Uh, and in violation of US law, he regularly flies into and out of the United States with large quantities of cash that he steals from <coughs> his own country that he then spends in the United States or introduces to its system. Um, similarly, if you look at other really, really corrupt countries, particularly in Francophone Africa, they have a weakness for luxury apartments in Paris, um, and again, a lot of non-governmental organisations have found out that the leaders of places like Congo, Brazzaville, or Gabon, or whatever it might be, tend to have all this, not only luxury property in Paris, but engage in conspicuous consumption there, and indeed hold bank accounts there. So there's a variety of sort of anecdotal and quantitative evidence that, in fact, OECD countries are just as happy, if not more, to receive stolen wealth than our tax havens. The second reason why the, the sort of criminal explanation doesn't seem to stand up that well is that the money's sort of doing the wrong sort of things when it comes to these tax havens or when it goes through them. Stolen wealth is generally spent on conspicuous consumption. It's invested in real estate um, or it's sort of secreted in bank accounts. It doesn't actually do much as stolen wealth. But the sorts of things that the money is used for that flows between China and these disproportionately Caribbean tax havens... Um, it's in terms of syndicating loans, it's, it's doing things with hedge funds, and above all, it's investing in stock markets. And these are not really things you want to do if you're a criminal, because there's a really high disclosure and reporting requirement if you're looking to be listed on the New York Stock Exchange or the NASDAQ or whatever it might be. So not only does this idea of tax havens give greater secrecy not hold up, but again, the profile of what this wealth is used for doesn't fit the profile of illicit wealth. Um, it fits the profile of legitimate wealth that's actually being used to do things and incidentally generate economic growth. So explanation number one doesn't really fit. It doesn't, doesn't seem to be. Undoubtedly, there is some stolen money or some proceeds of corruption that are taken from China and funneled through the Cayman Islands and British Virgin Islands and so on. But this seems to only explain, at best, a small proportion of these really big flows. Somewhat more plausibly, though I think still insufficient, is this idea of round-tripping. And this is the idea that foreign investment in China, China gets by far more foreign investment than any other developing country. In 1983, China received $1 billion in foreign investment. Um, last year, it received $93 billion in foreign investment. So it's a big flow. And people say, hang on, not so fast. Um, most of this foreign investment, or at least a good deal of this foreign investment, is not really foreign. It's round-tripped. So what you have is uh, Chinese people who set up a company, a shell company in the British Virgin Islands or the Cayman Islands. <coughs> they pass money from China uh, to the company in the Caribbean, and then they send it straight back to China. And this is a pretty cheap a shell company. And uh, as they say in the cooking shows, this is one I prepared earlier. This is my shell company from the Seychelles. Um, it cost 1,700 euros to set up last year, um, so it's a pretty cheap proposition. It was set up by um, corporate service providers in Hong Kong who do most of the incorporations for Chinese people as well. And you think, okay, well, why do this round-tripping? Why go through the, the, the legal fiction or the farce of sending money out from China just to bring it back in? And the most common explanation here, or the most important factor, not the only one, was that um, previously there was a big tax gap whereby foreign investors got far more favourable tax treatment than domestic investors. The Chinese government was keen to, uh, to stimulate and attract foreign direct investment, so it did this. But OK, that sounds sort of like a plausible explanation. But the problem is uh, that the tax differentials between foreign and domestic investors have got steadily smaller 
while these flows have got steadily bigger. Okay? So in this sense, the things aren't varying as you would expect if it was, in fact, the more favourable tax treatment that was driving things. Okay? So with the um, reforms to the Chinese tax code, I think in March of 2007, um, these special tax breaks for foreigners have been progressively withdrawn. So it, it, to that extent, the tax arbitrage rationale for round-tripping has got steadily... Um, less attractive for investors and for people trying to explain it, it's become steadily less convincing as an explanation of why you have these flows going on. Other people said it was more about asset protection, that um, property owned by foreigners might be more secure in terms of less likely to be seized by the Chinese authorities. Um, but again, through constitutional and legal changes from 2004, that sort of difference has been balanced out. There's less and less rationale. So it seems that with every passing year, this round-tripping explanation on tax grounds seems to be less and less persuasive. The second sort of problem I have with this um, round-tripping explanation is this idea of it's just an accounting trick, really. It's a tax avoidance um, device. Uh, it's, you know, within the letter of the law, but against the spirit of the law. But most important of all, people say, look, it's round-tripping, it's an accounting trick. It doesn't do anything important. It doesn't do anything substantial for the Chinese economy. You can't really explain much. Um, if anything, it might have a, a mildly negative effect because it means that Chinese authorities miss out on some revenue, some tax revenue <coughs> that they would otherwise get. Okay. As I talk about in a, sort of the positive half of my explanation, I think that there is a, a fair amount of round-tripping going on, but in fact, rather being motivated by crude tax arbitrage, it's motivated by in fact, by this idea of efficiency and enhancing institutions. The other big problem for the round-tripping explanation is if it was just a matter of sending money from China to the Caribbean and then getting it back, you'd expect the inbound flows to be pretty much the same size as the outbound flows. They should really cancel out. If it's just some sort of carousel arrangement where the same money goes from and to China, the flow should be the magnitude, of the, it should be the same size. But in fact, the flows to China from the Caribbean are more than twice as large as the flows from China to the Caribbean. So it seems like Chinese money is going out, getting mixed with a whole lot of genuinely foreign money, um, and then being, being moved back into, into China. Okay, so that's sort of the, the, negative, bit of the, the negative bit of the argument. Um, there's, something real, there's some real puzzle there to explain. Um, the explanations that we have so far are not satisfactory, neither the criminal money nor the, um, nor the round-tripping. So it brings me to this idea of, of transaction costs. I guess one of the most basic ideas of economics or fundamental ideas is that you get sort of progress or growth or efficiency um, when people and firms and countries specialise at producing what they're best at, according to the notion of comparative advantage, and trade to get the rest. And the more you can encourage this process of specialization and trade, the better off you'll be as an economy or as a firm, whatever it is. I'm interested in um, a couple of revisions to this. A guy called Ronald Coase writing in the 1930s, and then more recently Douglas North, Nobel Prize winner in 1993, and Oliver Williamson, Nobel Prize winner last year, have said, well, you know, maybe things are a little bit more complicated than this because, um, in fact this conventional view assumes that exchange or transacting is costless. Okay? Um, but in fact, all three of these, and as I say, most recently, North and Williams said, Williamson have said that in fact transacting might be expensive. Okay? 
they say, well, it's not necessarily so that specialization in trade or specialization in transacting is the best way. If transacting is expensive, in fact, incentives may favor self-sufficiency or autarky. If you can't trust other people to deliver on their end of the deal, for example, if you have an insecure contract structure, or if it's very hard to measure or assess what you're transacting, um, then it can make specialization more difficult and it can favor self-sufficiency. It can favor self-sufficiency um, for individual units, but it tends to mean that the economy overall works less well. And this, of course, raises the question, well, when do you get high transaction costs, i.e. things working not very well because you have not very much trade, and what circumstances give rise to, give rise to low transaction costs? And North, in particular, is... Um, is famous of saying, well, it's the sort of institutions you have that make a difference. If you've got good institutions, they can lower transaction costs, foster specialization, and do good things for your economy. Okay? If you don't have those good institutions, or you have bad institutions in place that generate perverse incentives, then transacting is expensive, you'll have less um, exchange, um, and you have less specialization and less good things as a result. And North tends to think that institutions and the effect the institutions have on transaction costs are the single greatest cause of patterns of development, success and failure um, in, in the contemporary world. So while the, sort of the transaction costs may be measurement, anyone who's bought a second-hand car, I don't really know if this is a good car. You know, the seller says it's just one careful owner down to the shops and back, but you know, maybe it's been sort of used rally driving in dirt roads or whatever. You're not quite sure what you're buying. And secondly, again, there's governance costs. Um, you've got a contract. How do you know that the other party will live up to his or her end of the deal? What happens if the court system's corrupt? What happens if there is no court system? You're not going to trust other people. You tend to say, look, if I could trust you, I'd make this deal, but I can't trust you, so I'm not going to. I'm just going to try and produce things in-house more. So as I say, it's this idea of um, institutions that can either promote efficiency by, by lowering transaction costs, if you have a good court system that works well, for example, or you have bad institutions or institutions that are weak or absent, in which case some transaction costs will be high and your economy is likely to develop less quickly. Okay, so a, a sort of really brief primer on transaction costs. How does this relate to China? It's argued that um, transaction costs in China are higher than they might be because many of the institutions that you'd want to see developed in an ideal world are in fact not present in China, or at least um, they have problems there. If you have pervasive corruption, if you have a, a weak court system, um, if you have a rigid corporate code, if you have pervasive um, intellectual property rights theft, if you tend to have a government that might interfere in, in business, uh, if you tend to have disagreements between provincial, municipal and national authorities, all of these things tend to generate um, relatively high transaction costs, or at least not lower them in the way you would like. Although in some ways these transaction costs have been improved by the reforms undertaken since 1978, so I'm told by people who know something about China, in other ways, transaction costs have actually been worsened because accompanying this liberalization was a process of decentralization. So, obviously, devolution of authority to provincial and municipal levels of government will often favor local champions at the expense of outsiders, i.e. not only foreigners, but people from outside the province or perhaps even outside the municipality. So, locally, um, politically, those firms that are politically collected connected with the locals get favoured and other people get hard done by. Normally it's regarded that 
trades with, within an economy will attract fewer transaction costs than trades between an economy. There's a so-called liability of foreignness. If you go to another country, you might not speak the language, you won't know the laws, you'll be a bit out of place, you're less likely to have political connections and so on. Tax havens are sort of an exception, however, because if you only have 22,000 people in your country, to the extent that you're going to get any investment at all, it can only be through foreigners. So tax havens over a period of decades have specifically set themselves up in a way so as to have the lowest possible transaction costs for foreign investors. Okay. So they tend to think, have things like a very complicated and sophisticated corporate code. They have pretty reliable courts run according to the British system with a right of appeal in London. Um, they have a pretty flexible government that's very responsive to the financial sector. Um, so you have all these sort of institutions that are specifically tailored and regularly updated to make life as easy as possible for foreigners, because foreigners provide 99% of the economic activity in these jurisdictions. <coughs> now, of course, the Caribbean physically is a long way away from China, um, but for intangible business like finance, this you know it doesn't matter too much. It doesn't matter at all. Um, geography is pretty much irrelevant. Um, so the idea is that. Uh, Chinese firms, but also foreigners looking to invest in China, have sought to ameliorate or mitigate the consequences of inefficient Chinese institutions. They've sought to lower transaction costs by using efficient institutions located in tax havens. And I'll go on now to talk about um, four examples of those. Um, the first to do with Chinese media and technology firms. The second to do with a Chinese finance firm. Um, thirdly, to do with um, sort of genuine foreign investment. Uh, and in the form of joint ventures, and lastly, in terms of foreign investment in the energy sector in China. Briefly, the first thing is in terms of stock market listing. Many Chinese firms, when they want to attract foreign capital, um, in order to list on the Hong Kong Stock Exchange or the New York Stock Exchange or the NASDAQ, find it much easier, and indeed it's impossible to use a Chinese firm to, or very much more difficult to use a Chinese firm to list on those exchanges, whereas it is entirely possible to use a Cayman Islands firm or a British Virgin Islands firm to do this. Cayman Islands firms and British Virgin Islands firms are very quick to set up. They're cheap. They don't pay any tax. Capital can be reduced or expanded. They can be used for any purpose that's not illegal and they have no annual reporting requirements um, either. So in that sense, they're very sort of flexible, they're cheap, and they're quick. They also operate in a tax-neutral environment. Okay? Either, neither the Cayman Islands or the British Virgin Islands has any, any tax. So what you tend to see is Chinese people who want to raise money from Americans, or at least from the American stock market, don't get a Chinese firm to list on the New York Stock Exchange. They set up a, Cayman's, a Cayman Islands holding company to list on the stock exchange. The Cayman Islands company then owns a Chinese company, which, and the Chinese company actually does, does the thing, whatever it might be. So Baidu, I understand the Chinese equivalent of Google, is a Cayman Islands company. Uh, and so with a lot of semiconductor firms, a lot of biotechnology firms, a lot of print media firms, and a lot of um, web firms as well. So this sort of gives rise to a simple structure. Again, one sort of example there. So you have the Cayman Islands company listed on the stock exchange. And that owns a, a, a secondary BVI company that owns the actual company that does stuff in China. Okay. So it's, an, it's a combination funded by a combination of Chinese money and U.S. money, or at least foreign money. This is sort of the simple version. That's the complicated version, so I don't really understand. But anyway, it's pretty much the same thing. 
Um, the first two, this is again a real company, the first two boxes at the top, the top one's a Cayman Island company that owns a British Virgin Islands company that then owns all the rest of these other companies or has equity stakes in them or um, has loan arrangements with them. So again, fantastically complicated, but it's the same principle. You can't, or at least it's very much more difficult to use a Chinese firm to list on a foreign stock exchange. Um, so just set up a Cayman Island one or a BVI one instead, and that way you can lure in all this money. The second sort of example is a similar one, but it's interesting in that it involves the Asian Development Bank as well. And this is to do with a Chinese firm called Credit OrionWise Group that provides um, loan guarantees to small and medium-sized enterprises in China. Um, again, apparently, I'm told on hopefully good authority, that... Um, Small and medium-sized firms in China are starved of capital, or at least have a tough time getting as much capital as they would like. Um, most of the banks in China are big and prefer, list, uh, prefer lending to big companies, either because they're easier to sort of assess the risk for big companies um, or because of some political connections as well that there's the, the, the central bank in China sets interest rates in such a way that it's unattractive to lend in small and medium-sized companies. And foreign banks can't really lend easily to Chinese small and medium uh, enterprises. These same small firms find it tough to list on the stock market, so they're in a bit of a bind. Okay? So how are they going to get out of this? The Asian Development Bank looked at this problem and said, well, this is serious because fact, small and medium enterprises in China are the ones that do most of the job generation. They generate most employment and most income and most growth. So to the extent that these firms can't get access to, to capital, that's, that's, a, that's a real problem. What can we do about it? What can we do with our development mandate? Um, and so they lent this money to Credit OrionWise Group, a loan guarantee, in order that um, Credit OrionWise Group would in turn be able to lend to small and medium-sized Chinese enterprises. But the ADB got a bit of a shock and said, well, look, Credit OrionWise, you're a Chinese firm in the sense of you're owned by Chinese people, you do stuff in China. Why are you officially domiciled in the Cayman Islands? And they were worried about this, the ADB, so they got a legal opinion, which again is sort of relevant to the previous example I gave. The legal counsel for the Asian Development Bank explained this. He said the Cayman Islands, the Cayman Islands legal system is based on British law and legal concepts are therefore familiar and acceptable to international investors. Most PRC companies seeking a listing on the Hong Kong Stock Exchange incorporate their listed companies in the Cayman Islands. ADB's external counsel and Credit OrionWise external counsel have confirmed that, in present circumstances, a direct listing of the group as a PRC company is not feasible as a listing would involve a highly bureaucratic process, which is why PRC companies tend to use offshore jurisdictions. The Cayman Islands is generally considered desirable because the legal requirements regarding capital reduction and the distribution of capital are less complicated by those in Hong Kong. Hong Kong's stamp duty is not chargeable for share, share transfers that take place prior to the initial public offering, and the Cayman Islands are compliant with anti-money laundering laws and not on tax haven blacklists. So again, it's sort of odd that you have this institution with an explicitly development mandate saying that, yes, we should use the Cayman Islands and, you know, this is standard, this is unremarkable, and there are good economic efficiency reasons for doing so um, that have nothing to do with evading corporate tax or um, hiding uh, stolen wealth. The third brief example, so these first two are sort of Chinese people who want to raise capital overseas or at least have access to Cayman Islands institutions overseas. The other one's sort of looking the other way in, where you've got genuinely foreign people, companies or hedge funds, who want to invest in China. As I say, there's been a huge, a huge increase in the level of foreign investment in China. Uh, and looking at both um, joint ventures and what are rather endearingly called woofies, 
um, wholly foreign-owned enterprises. Okay? And the idea of a joint venture either between one Chinese interest and a foreign interest or between two foreign interests. The problem that joint ventures face in China is that they can't change their ownership structure, border directors or operational focus without getting government permission to do so. <coughs> Usually this is a formality, but many political authorities have found out it's a great excuse to exert political pressure on companies or get a bribe. Say, well, I, I could sign this form, but you know, what are you going to do to make it worth my while? Uh, and even if they do do it, it may slow a process down. If the joint venture is an operational subsidiary of something based in Samoa or the Caymans or Seychelles or BVI, um, again, you can solve these problems of ownership. You can adjust the ownership, you can change the board of directors, and you can change the focus without... And you've got this incredibly responsive regulatory regime provided by tax havens that's very much more flexible, more investor-friendly than that which is found in China. So instead you do all of the business, instead of doing it legally or physically in China, um, you do it one layer back in terms of companies or trusts that own the underlying joint venture. Again, the underlying joint venture being the thing that actually does the stuff. For where you have a combination of local interests and foreign interests, this also means that the Chinese partner can keep royalty and dividend payments in foreign currency and hard currency rather than having to repatriate it in local currency. And the other advantage is that... Um, if you have two foreign interests there and they get into a disagreement, the last thing they want to do is use Chinese courts. So imagine that you have an American company and a British company. They go in a joint venture to invest in China. They have a disagreement. They have a falling out for whatever reason. Neither of them wants to be in a Chinese court to settle that because, as I say, it's liable to political pressure, to bribery. The corporate code is not as sophisticated as those found elsewhere. However, the British firm won't want to go to an American court and the American firm won't want to go to a British court because then there'll be home ground advantage. So the solution is to use a court that looks familiar to both but is not the home ground of either. And again, that leads you to places like the Caymans and the BVI. This structure is actually being reversed now. So Chinese firms um, are investing in Russian oil and gas industry by setting up their own joint ventures. So it's a Chinese-Russian joint venture. But again, they use the same structure that foreign investors have used in China. Now Chinese are using it to invest in other third countries as well. I'll talk a, a bit about India Mauritius and then conclude. As I say, the initial puzzle with China is how the hell can such small places root such a lot of money? Um, in this case, as I say, small Caribbean islands to China. You've got a very similar sort of puzzle, at least on a prime facie basis, to do with India and Mauritius. Um, of all the foreign investment invested in India over the last 10 years, 43% has come from Mauritius, as opposed to only 8% of that has come from the United States and 5% from, from the European Union and 3% from Japan. Again, Mauritius is a really small place. It's um, 1.2 million, so you know, marginally bigger than the Caymans but still pretty small. And again, you've got this thing where Indian investment tends to go out through Mauritius. Again, the conventional explanation was it's tax-driven because there's a tax treaty between India and Mauritius. But again, you've had this similar sort of thing. The, the problem with a round-tripping um, explanation for China is a similar sort of problem experience with India and Mauritius as well. Namely that over the last five years, you've had a narrowing in the tax differential between foreign investors and domestic investors in Mauritius. So it no longer really pays for Indians to go take this indirect route. And yet, at the same time, the tax differentials have got smaller, the flows have got bigger. So it seems unlikely that the tax differential explains that sort of stuff. I guess just to, to conclude, um, having looked at this, I think there's a real puzzle there, and I think that people haven't looked at this enough. 
um, to do with the China relationship and secondarily the India relationship. And when I have ventured explanations of these, they've been wanting or they've been inaccurate and they're getting increasingly inaccurate. Um, I think that what has been explained as criminal flows or as just a sort of cheap accounting device to minimise tax that would otherwise be due is in fact something that's real and really quite important. If efficiency-enhancing institutions are one of the main determinants of whether poor countries can become rich countries and lift millions of people out of poverty, probably the first best option is for poor countries to get efficiency-enhancing institutions that um, reduce transaction costs and thereby facilitate specialisation exchange and all that great stuff. But, of course, it is much more easily said than done to develop a functional, reliable, impartial court system that everyone believes in will actually impartially arbitrate and effectively enforce contracts. So while the first best solution is for China and India and the Congo and everywhere else to get good court systems and all the other sort of institutions that we largely take for granted, that's tough and it's a really long-term project. So the argument that sort of, or at least the implication of this, is that developing countries, at least when it comes to intangibles like raising money, getting access to credit, guaranteeing foreign investment, arbitrating disputes, having recourse to the court system, in the meantime, while they're building up their own institutions, poor countries may be well served by using institutions hosted in tax havens, given that tax havens, tax havens are especially, especially designed their institutions for just that purpose. And again, to the extent that um, solving problems of development, one of the sort of most important, not only sort of scholarly puzzles, but also policy priorities, I think e even shedding light on this process in a, in a small way um, will hopefully be a worthwhile enterprise. Okay. For more Griffith University podcasts, go to www.griffith.edu.au forward slash podcasts.